Well, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that opening the Bible is like having you speak to us. So give us the humility to listen, to see where we go wrong, and to see how good you are, even when we go wrong. And we ask this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, I'm going to be reading Exodus chapter 17, and it's on page 59. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand, you, uh, I will stand before you there on the rock, at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrelling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek, and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of the altar, The Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. 
the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, I'm going to pause there, and the children are going to go out to their groups. Well, let me start, and uh, we're going to uh, have a look at that uh, passage, uh, Exodus chapter 17. And if you've been here before us, you know that we're reading bits of the Bible that are very, very long ago. And we wonder why are we leading, reading bits of the Bible when we are now in the 21st century and life has changed so much. Why do we go back in centuries and read this? And I'm hoping what you've begun to see as we read this part of the Bible is that uh, the Bible and what's happening in the story that we're looking at in the story of Exodus is a small-scale picture of the Christian life today. So we know how the story of Exodus right at the start had a lamb who died to keep the anger of God away from one home. But we know that that is a small-scale picture of something bigger that Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God, he died to stop the anger of God coming into millions of homes that trust in him. And now the people have left Egypt and they're on a journey from Egypt to their promised land, the land of Canaan. And that isn't such a big journey. I know it took them 40 years to do it in the end, but actually they could have done it a whole lot quicker if they hadn't disobeyed God. It's a small distance to travel. But that's a small scale picture of the epic journey the Christians are making every day towards the enormous kingdom of God, of uh, Jesus. Now, it's not an easy journey for them. And what is surprising is that it is God that is making the journey difficult. This is the third time God is not giving his people something they desperately need, like water in a desert. And you might ask, why does he keep doing that? And we're going to learn from Exodus chapter 17 about how God tests and we're going to learn about how God saves. First we're going to learn about how God tests and in verse 1 you see it's another water test. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness by stages but there was no water for the people to drink. And in verse 2 they grumble, actually the word is stronger, they quarrel, they test the Lord. Now what happens when God tests us? And what happens when we test God? Really helpful to put those two side by side. First, when God tests man, he is absolutely right. In fact, it is absolutely necessary for God to test man. Let me explain to you why. Our big problem in life is that we think that we are perfect. We are like a, a, a masterpiece, a wonderful painting. And it's God's job to career us safely to our final destination where we can finally be hung up on the wall and everything will be right. But our problem is that we are a painting that is back to front. 
we keep thinking that God is there to fulfill our purposes in life. And so God tests us so that we might turn around and face the right way and understand that actually life is all about us trusting His purposes. And not the other way around with Him achieving ours. And so God does not achieve our purposes and serve our purposes and give us everything that we need because his purpose is to grow in us spiritual muscles so that we trust him and trust that he is good even when we can't see that he is good and when God tests us he's growing our muscles and ultimately to grow our joy because we see that when God supplies our needs, our confidence in Him grows. And so when God tests us, His purpose is always to add something to us. To add to our trust and then to add to our joy. That is what God intends when He tests. But it works the other way when man tests God. What happens when man tests God is rather than add, he takes away, he takes away God's reputation. So that you see in verse 3, he starts thinking that uh, God doesn't really care. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so our testing, God shows that we think he is there to achieve our purposes, to give us what we want. And so we grumble because we think that we deserve more or we deserve better. And like a painting that keeps turning front to back, we think God is there to, save, to serve us. It's God's job to prevent need. Whereas God wants to turn the painting round and to bring us to trust him that he will supply need. So when we uh, are tested by God, he wants to grow trust and grow joy. When we test God, where well, we take away his goodness and we grumble. See the difference? Which is where we come to this very interesting rock. And it's uh, uh, there in uh, front of us, uh, if uh, you look at uh, verse uh, 5 and uh, verse 6. And the scene is set a bit like a courtroom. And uh, you've got the elders of Israel on one side, and you've got uh, Moses and, and, and in, in verse 6. And then there is God, and God is identifying with the rock. He's standing on it. And then you've got uh, 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 Moses with the staff in his hand in verse 5. And we're told in verse 5 that this is the staff with which he hit the Nile. That's bad. Because this is the staff of God's judgment. And when he hit the Nile, there was death 
And now there are people grumbling against God and Moses has got the staff of God in his hands. Where do you think that staff should land? Well, what happens is that uh, Moses brings down the rod of God's judgment on God. On the rock where God is. And it's like God at that moment takes on himself the punishment that his people deserve and is struck. And the result is that the blessings come pouring out to the people and the water saves their lives even though they don't deserve that outcome. And so there's water everywhere. And that's a connection that uh, the Apostle Paul makes with uh, Jesus. That rod is connected with Jesus by the Apostle Paul. Uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So the rod falls on Christ, on Jesus, on the rock, and the water comes out to save the lives of God's people. And God, in that small way, shows us a bigger picture of how trust opens the way to joy. And if you wanted to look and see other parallels that Jesus makes in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, he talks about the water being the Holy Spirit that gives light to his people. The water here is a picture of something bigger the Holy Spirit there. So God tests because he wants to grow muscles of trust and ultimately to add to joy. But the second thing I want to say is that God saves. And I want you to forget that bit of writing on the screen just at the moment. Because once again, God's people are threatened this time by an enemy coming out to attack them. And this time, they need to fight. So there's the enemy, and this time, they need to fight. You remember, when they were in Egypt, and the, Egypt, and the enemy came at them, they didn't have to fight. They just watched. But now it's like God is progressing them. And in verse 9, he brings them into a partnership with him, and this time they have a contribution to make. They are involved. But it is a one-sided partnership. It is God that uh, helps them to win, if you look at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. In other words, it's uh, what's happening uh, on, the, uh, on the, 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 the mountain with Moses that is different and not what's happening with the soldiers. And again, it is the staff that makes the difference. When the staff was uh, heavy, uh, when the staff was up, uh, they won. When the hands got heavy, the staff sagged and they lost. 
And when they propped up the arms and supported and held the staff up again, there was victory. And it's the staff that brings judgment, this time, on the enemy. Now, the enemy, the Amalekites, were no worse than the people of Israel. In fact, it's not that this happened to them because they were particularly bad, because the Israelites, we are told, are the ones who grumbled and complained and tested the Lord. But the Israelites were the ones that God was committed to save. And so they were always going to be safe. And uh, they're going to be safe one day forever because he says in verse 14 that uh, God is going to block out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. Now that sounds harsh, isn't it, for God to say there is going to be a time when this group will be absolutely no more. But think this, that the Amalekites in the Bible stand for the people who will always, always, always oppose and try and uh, obliterate God's people. And they are going to do it down the track, generation after generation after generation, the Amalekites stand for those who are going to try and destroy the people of God. And they will do it again and again and again. The Amalekites are always appearing on the battlefield. Even one Amalekite will try and extinguish God's people. So if you read in the Bible and go into Uh, the future and fast forward and you get to the story of Esther and there is a man called Haman who is trying to uh, uh, destroy uh, God's people in that story. And Haman is called an Agagite and is named after a famous Amalekite king called Agag. So that's who Haman is. And he tries to extinguish the whole people of God. So the Amalekites stand for generation after generation after generation of people who are going to try and uh, 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 obliterate God's people from the memory of the earth. And what's going to happen is that there's going to be a book uh, that is written in verse 14 there's to be a memorial where Amalek was overwhelmed this day and there will be a time when you won't be able to remember them one day. But it's interesting how this battle is to be recorded in the book to tell you that. Because this is the battle to remember again and again and again in the future. This is the book of remembrance that you come back to, Exodus chapter 17, when you have Amalekites in front of you. Not just in the Old Testament, a literal tribe, but even today when a dictator in North Korea comes onto the scene and tries to completely blot out the memory of Christians from his country. 
And we need to remember, whenever you see someone like that, acting like an Amalekite, you need to read the Book of Memorial in Exodus chapter 17, and you need to know that there will be a day when there will be no memory of Amalekites. Until then they will try to make no memory of us. So remember the Book of uh, Memorial. Whenever you see the headlines, remember Exodus 17. Remember the rod of judgment. Remember the outcome. Because one day you won't remember. Because there won't be any opposition around. So let's take some main points home. I think I was meant to talk about uh, uh, the uh, Amalekites and the scroll. Let's take home some main points. Can you see, if someone is on our estate and thinking through what it would be like to become a Christian, that there does need to be quite a big shift in thinking. Because many people want to join God, normally because they need his help, in some area where they want him to make a difference. Either perhaps where they're battling against an addiction or particular problem that they might have. And they say, God, I want you to come and do this for me. Now, it's wonderful that they do think like that. Because sometimes it's only when we have difficulty that we do turn to God and say, help. But when God responds to our cry for help, don't be surprised if he will turn the painting round and bring us to trust his purposes rather than expect him to achieve ours. Because he wants to grow our trust and our confidence in him. And therefore, if you follow him, it will be wonderful because he will grow your trust and he will grow your joy. I promise you he will. But to do that, he will test you. And he will do that to add to your joy. Therefore the Christian life will not happen the way you think it will or want it to. The Christian life is God testing you again and again and again so that you turn the painting round and say this is about God and me fulfilling his purpose, trusting him, rather than him fulfilling mine. And therefore it's important tonight to ask us, to ask God to save us from his judgment. Whether that's exactly what we deserve, and to ask him to help you to trust him through the tests, not to lay out how you want him to act. So, first thing then for a non Christian, uh, someone listening to this, thinking through whether to become one, well, understand that God will grow your trust. But he will do it through the tests. Second, if you're a church person, it is just helpful to see how easy it is for church people to press the grumbling button, the complaining button, and the quarreling button, and the I will test God button. 
And the reason why church people do that, I think, is because church people are often given the sales pitch that if you follow God, He looks after you and you get everything that you need. The prosperity you want, all the boxes you want ticked. You follow God, this is what happens. Well, when we hear the sales pitch that tells us that God will give us everything, we need to remember Exodus chapter 17 when sometimes God will give us nothing. And God gives us nothing because the shortages that God puts into our lives are the opportunities that he gives us to trust him, to grow our confidence, ultimately to grow our joy. And then there is a word, I think, here for every genuine believer because isn't it true that all of us experience unanswered prayer and unwanted conflict? And we want to ask, how does God love us? How can we say that he does in the days of shortage and sadness? And friends, this is where we need to go. When we find out and when we worry that God loves us and asks us, the flag in the ground that he does love us is exactly as Abigail was saying earlier. The flag that God loves us is the cross. That's where we see how God <coughs> uh, takes the rod of anger on himself in order that the life of blessing can come to us, even when we are not trusting him at our worst moments. And he loves us then. We need to look at the cross, not the shortage, if we're going to measure God's love. And that's where we see how he loves us even when we don't deserve it. And he loves you there today. But when people discourage us and sometimes do that violently, it is helpful for us also to see here how the Lord is still our banner. And in the memorial book, it says he will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And you see in verse 16 that a hand against God's people is a hand upon the throne of the Lord. It is a declaration of war on God to touch his people. That doesn't mean that God stops the battle immediately but it means persevering in that battle rather than giving up because someone's nasty. Perseverance is the right thing. But in our case, it means that we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Not that we go to war with them. Because again, the cross is our guide. Remember that the hands of Jesus were lifted up and uh, were, 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 were there, if you like, with wood in the hands. Not to ultimately uh, project the judgment of God onto the enemy, 
not to dispense judgment, but to receive judgment, so that the enemies become God's people. That's how Christians handle opposition today. And that's how we are to see an ancient part of the Bible telling us about our present life. It's a life where we understand God will test us. You will see that maybe this week happening to you. So that you grow your trust <coughs> in Him. Not so that you worry whether He loves you. But also remember that when the newspaper headlines give us news of people who are trying to blot out the memory of Christians. Let's go to the memorial. Let's go to Exodus 17. Let's go and remember the rod. Let's remember the outcome. Because one day those enemies will not be there to be remembered at all. But let's pray that God will help us to remember that to hold on to that and then after a moment of maybe you personally privately quietly talking to God about what we've learned today God has said this in the Bible how are you going to talk to him back in the light of what he has said let's have a minute where you talk to him and then I'll finish and we can take some questions and answers well I mean it's up so let's uh, finish in prayer our gracious Father, we thank you that you test us to grow trust. Please use what we've heard tonight to grow trust when we don't have what we need and when our enemies seem to be winning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.